following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. Wisdom has built her house. She has set up its seven pillars. She has prepared her meat and mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her servants, and she calls from the highest point of the city, Let all who are simple come to my house. To those who have no sense, she says, Come, eat my food, and drink the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways, and you will live. Walk in the way of insight. Whoever corrects a mocker invites insults. Whoever rebukes the wicked incurs abuse. Do not rebuke mockers, or they will hate you. Rebuke the wise, and they will love you. Instruct the wise, and they will be wiser still. Teach the righteous, and they will add to their learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For through wisdom your days will be many, and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, your wisdom will, re- will reward you. If you are a mocker, you alone will suffer. Folly is an unruly woman. She is simple and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house on a seat at the highest point of the city, calling out to those who pass by, who go straight on their way. Let all who are simple come to my house. To those who have no sense, she says, stolen water is sweet. Food eaten in secret is delicious. But little do they know that the dead are there that her guests are deep in the realm of the dead. Well, it's a joy to be here. We will be there in Proverbs chapter 9. And while you're kind of remaining there and as we prepare our time, just want to say greetings uh, in the the name of our Lord, greetings from the churches that do make up the Pillar Network. It's a joy to be here. Uh, Thankful for our partnership in the gospel to plant churches, revitalize churches really now all over the world. Uh, And it's just a joy to be uh, able to open God's Word with God's people. I thank the pastors here for allowing me the opportunity uh, to do that. Um, Thank you, Pastor Matt, for the invitation. Uh, I do think the first time we ever really met, you started grilling me about the Pillar Network. And I was like, I don't really know this guy. You know, the only thing I know about him is he says witty things on social media, and he rightly understands that Michael Jordan is better than LeBron James. And for me, that was like enough to think that's pillar material right there. And so I was, I was eager to get to know him better. Uh, and so I am thankful for our growing friendship and, and the, the joy to be able to open God's word. Proverbs chapter 9, and we're going to consider the question, will we be wise? Uh, the sermon's entitled, The Most Important I Do. And I'm going to explain uh, why that is in just a minute. But here's sort of the setting of what's happening in Proverbs chapter 9. Solomon, really the main thrust of Proverbs is Solomon training his son, the the one that's going to be king, the future king, to to rule the kingdom and to do so by wisdom. And here in Proverbs 9, Solomon is sort of summing up the the previous chapters of Proverbs. He's he's setting the stage for the rest of the book, really the kind of the common wisdom we think about when we think about the book of Proverbs, that being chapters 10 through 30. But he's setting the stage for the rest of the book by encouraging his son, again, this one who is to be the king, this one who is to be the ideal Israelite, He wants him to marry or to be enthralled with wisdom, to proverbially make wisdom his queen in order to rule faithfully. Now, part of the point then that we need to understand this morning is that if this sort of wisdom is good for the king, it's wisdom that is good for us who are commoners as well. 
And so here in Proverbs 9, he is, he is coming to the, to the climax of the prologue of the book, and he sets before his son two contrasting ways. He, he sets before him really two contrasting women, and he asks the son to make a fundamental faith decision to be in relationship with Lady Wisdom and to not be in relationship with Lady Folly. So that he can move from being this naive young prince to being a mature and wise and well-married king. And so he's going to set before his son, again, two women that are competing for the son's attention. And he will either choose Lady Wisdom, or as we know from later in the scriptures, wisdom that comes from above. Or he will choose Lady Folly, what James 3 calls wisdom that comes from below. Now, that's the same significant decision, the the title of the sermon, The Most Important I Do, it's the same significant decision that is presented to us all this morning. Whether we've you know, been attending church for most of our lives or whether we're just here this morning sort of checking out Christian things, this, this decision is presented to us all and the decision we make will determine whether we are ultimately wise or whether we walk in the way of the foolish. Now, again, to prepare our hearts, I want to read a parallel text from Proverbs chapter 30 and then ask for God's help. As we work our way through Proverbs chapter 9, I'm going to be in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 2 through 4. I'll make reference to these later in the sermon, but they, they will help us prepare our mind and our heart. And here's what the author writes as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit. Surely I am only a brute, not a man. I do not have human understanding. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I attained to the knowledge of the Holy One. For who has gone up to heaven and come down? Whose hands have gathered up the wind? Who has wrapped up the waters in a cloak? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is the name of his son? Surely you know. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Father, now, as we uh, give our attention to the book, Father, I do ask that you would help me. Father, would you help me to preach with confidence in your word for the good of your people? Father, confidence in your word for the sake of those in this room that may not follow you. But, Father, ultimately, confidence in your word for the glory of your name. Father, we know these things have been written down for us upon whom the ends of the ages has come. Father, we know your word is able to make us wise unto salvation and to train and instruct us in righteousness. And Father, I ask that you would do that this morning. Father, now would you sanctify us in the truth? We know your word is truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the question of who you will marry is really one of the biggest decisions you will ever make. Now, I'm the oldest of, of four sons. I actually have a twin brother who's three minutes younger than me, but I'm the old, and I make sure he knows that all the time. But I'm the oldest of four sons, and I, and I got married later in life, though people constantly, and by people I mainly mean my parents, people were constantly trying to set me up. And, and so before I got married, you always had these people saying, I think this one would be great, and I think this lady would make a great pastor's wife. And because I got married later in life, people would often say, you know, Nate's really afraid to walk down the aisle. Now, the closest I had ever been to walking down an aisle before at a wedding was when I was four years old. I was a ring bearer in my aunt and uncle's wedding me and my twin brother, and when the ceremony started, my twin brother went down, but I got scared and stayed at the back and refused to go down, okay? So I, I always had people saying, see, he's afraid to go down the aisle. My aunt and uncle to this day hold it over my head. 
they'll say things like your brother John delivered while you quivered in the back. And I'm like, guys, I was four years old and that was decades ago. Would you just please let it go? But eventually I did make my way down the aisle. I married Kelsey and it was a wonderful time. There was this, you know, time of family and friends coming together. There was this time of exchanging rings. We had a Mexican buffet at our reception. We had this fountain of queso at our reception. It was an incredible time. And it's true, the decision we make about who we will marry is a massive decision. And as I've said, that's essentially what's going on in Proverbs chapter 9. Solomon, like my parents, is trying to set his son up with a wife. He presents before his son the question, who will you marry? Or maybe more specifically in Proverbs 9, whose wedding feast will you attend? And that question is posed to all of us. Who will we choose? Solomon is driving home to his son, he's driving home to us, as these scriptures have been written down for us, that the only way we're going to be able to live out, again, that everyday wisdom that we think about when we think about the book of Proverbs, we're going to see, if you went through the rest of the book, you would see through Proverbs 10 to 30, the only way we're going to be able to live that out is by making a fundamental faith decision to be drawn to wisdom. And so my main idea this morning is this, those who are in relationship with wisdom will be wise, thus having a better life now and a longer life to come. Those who are in relationship with wisdom will be wise, thus having a better and longer life. Solomon here is a wise and savvy teacher. He, he's using personification. This, this giving of human characteristics is something non-human. He's using that to teach and to appeal about wisdom. And we're familiar with this, right? We have advertisers who use things like a gecko to talk to us about car insurance. When I was growing up, there was this jolly green giant that tried to make vegetables more appealing to us. Didn't work for me to to quote Ron Swanson. I think vegetables are simply the food that my food eats. But here, Solomon personifies wisdom as as a woman. He partially does this because the Hebrew word for wisdom is, is feminine, but there's more going on. Again, remember, Solomon is teaching his son. He's teaching the the youth of the nation, and he wants them to be wise. And so being a good teacher, he portrays wisdom as this beautiful woman. But not just any woman. It's a woman who can cook and who can prepare the table. Because what are young men drawn to? Young men are drawn to, you know, women and food. Kelsey and queso. And so he's, he's pointing out here, Like if I can make a woman appear to be enticing, appear to be appealing to my son, hopefully it will drive him to make the right decision. Now, ladies, you're not being overlooked here. If this was Solomon writing to his daughter, he would be he would kind of just be reversing what's taking place. And since I don't know what women find attractive, I'm not going to even try to use an illustration. But part of the point is the people who need and just listen to this. If you're a young man in this room, part of the people who need wisdom the most are young men. Young women are not the ones driving around at night trying to smash mailboxes and things like that. (laughs) Young men need wisdom the most. And so that's what's going on here. This is him trying to present before his son a decision that he hopes he will make. And he's doing so by pointing out that wisdom is like this attractive woman that he hopes his son will be drawn to. So let's look at the difference between these two women. These these two, this lady wisdom and lady folly, who he sits before the sets before the son with the question, who will you choose? Because ultimately we all need to understand this morning, there is no third option. There are two paths to life. 
There are two women to choose. There are two feasts to go to. And so he sets this before the sun. And I want you to notice as we work our way through, there's some striking similarities, but also there's some key differences between these two women. First, let's look at their preparation. First one, it says this, wisdom has built her house. She has set up her seven pillars. She has prepared her meat and mixed her wine. She also set her table. She has sent her servants and she calls from the highest point in the city. Let all who are simple come to my house. Notice how active Lady Wisdom is. She builds her house. She sets up these seven pillars. It gives the picture that she has built this this sturdy house with a solid foundation. The implication for the son is building your life on wisdom is a sturdy foundation upon which to build your life. But not only does she build, she also prepares the meal. She sets the table. Interestingly, here we see that she prepares meat and mixed wine. This is an indication that this is a celebratory affair. This is a feast. This is a banquet. And then in verse 3, she sends her servants out. She sends these messengers out to call people to the banquet. These messengers would be like ambassadors who speak on behalf of the one sending them. And they're making this invitation so that people will come to this feast. And in particular here, they're making the invitation to Solomon's son. Folly, as opposed to wisdom, though, is lazy. Look at verse 13. Folly is an unruly woman. She is simple and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house on a seat at the highest point of the city, calling out to those who pass by. She isn't a builder. She hasn't built her house. She doesn't even prepare her meal. Instead, she sits there and she's unruly. One translation says she is loud and they say she knows nothing. And because she knows nothing, she doesn't build and she doesn't set up her table. She is not active. She, again, is lazy. She doesn't send out people to invite others in as well. She doesn't have these ambassadors or servants going out. Instead, she just get this picture. She sits in her chair at the front of her door and she just shouts at people who are coming by. We're going to see in a minute her only tool seems to be that of seduction. And so Solomon hopes we will see the difference in the activity of these two women. Again, thinking about it practically, that we would be drawn to productivity, which is, which is wise, rather than be drawn to laziness, which is folly. But let's also consider their audience. Look again at verse 4. Let all who are simple come to my house. To those who have no sense, she says, come eat my food and drink the wine that I have mixed. And then down at verse 14, look at follies. She sits at the door of her house on the seat at the highest point of the city, calling out to those who pass by, who go straight on their way, let all who are simple come to my house. Both invite the simple to their meals, okay? Now, the simple are simply those who have not yet made a decision. For our vernacular, you might think of them as, as swing voters. They haven't made up their mind. They're neither wise nor are they mockers yet. And both of them make appeals from the highest places in the city. This is interesting. Verse 3 and verse 14, they're both set up shop at the high place. So they set up shop next to each other on top of this hill, and they're, they're calling out to the same clientele. Now, where I live in Wake Forest, we have something similar to this going on. Uh, really, on opposite corners, you have Chick-fil-A on one and you have Zaxby's on the other. And they're appealing to the same clientele. And you have wisdom, Chick-fil-A on one side, and Zaxby's, foolishness, on the other. And they're calling to people who are passing by, saying, come on in here. And that's the same thing that's going here. 
Both of these women are calling out to these, to these passers-by. But interestingly, they're both calling out, the text says, to those who have no sense. This is what it means by being simple. In fact, it could literally be translated, those who lack a heart. And that's really important for us. The scriptures are telling us, in order to be wise, we need to have a new heart. So just to make this very practical this morning, if you're not a believer, if you don't follow the Lord, you will never ultimately be wise. You see, there's more going on in the text than you might just see at first glance. It's theologically interesting where they set up their houses, where they set up shop, where they make their invitations. They make their invitations from the highest points in the city, and that's important because the highest points in the city would be reserved for temples alone. And so what's happening here is not only do you have invitations from two women, you have invitations from two temples. One is the temple of God, that's Yahweh, and one is this temple of idols. It's false gods that seek to to draw away Israel, to to draw away Solomon's sons, really to, to draw away us. For us, practically this morning, we think about it like this. What are the sort of things that compete for our worship? What are the sort of things that draw us away from worshiping God, whether that be other religions or whether that just be things that become more important to us than the creator himself? But third, let's look at their invitations. Look again at verse four. To those who have no sense, she says, come eat my food and drink the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and you will live. Walk in the way of insight. Verse 16, this is Folly's invitation. Let all who are simple come to my house. To those who have no sense, she says, stolen water is sweet. Food eaten in secret is delicious. At first glance, their invitations look very, very similar. Let all who are simple, let those who have no sense come to my house. And this shows something that we need to be aware of this morning. It's simply this. Folly oftentimes mimics wisdom. It masquerades, right? It it never just comes out and says, I'm foolishness, I'm folly. No, instead, it masks itself, it masquerades itself as wisdom. That's what folly is. Folly is not, uh, folly is the sort of thing that at least at first seems harmless to us. We know this, right? When, When men have affairs, it's never just, oops, I had an affair. It's slowly things have been taking place in their lives that lead them down this path. That's why Proverbs pictures the way of the fool as this path that's leading us to destruction. And though it doesn't appear at first glance that their appeals are different, they're actually very, very different. Because wisdom calls us to repentance in the text. Wisdom calls us to acknowledge that we need to change. Verse 6 says, leave your simple ways and you will live. Change your direction to come into my feast. Folly instead just says, come on in here. She never makes any statement about leaving your simple ways. And again, remember this. Why is this? Because folly knows nothing. She doesn't even know how to tell you to change your direction. She doesn't know how to tell you how to live in a different way. She doesn't even know more than the people she's inviting into her feast. Her basic invitation then is let's just all come in here and stay simple together. Stay foolish together. And yet so often that is the deception of folly. That is the folly of folly. We do not see our sin as foolishness that is simply enticing us to a path that leads to destruction. But not only are their invitations different, so are their meals. Look again at that. Verse 2, wisdom prepares meat and mixed wine. 
And then later she says, come eat of my food and drink of the wine. That word food could also be the word bread. Verse 17, stolen water is sweet. Food or bread eaten in secret is delicious. These meals are not really even comparable, right? Wisdom has meat, the most important part of the meal to me. It has bread. It has mixed wine. On the other hand, folly simply has bread and water. One has steak. The other has a biscuit. One has mixed wine. The other has a bottle of water. And most scholars believe that this stolen water in verse 17 is connected to the sexual immorality of Proverbs chapter 5. It's, it's this picture of this man drinking from a cistern that's not his own. It's a picture of this man taking something that doesn't belong to him. And so we see her, her drawing in, her wooing in is an appeal to the forbidden. And indeed, it has been like this. We've made note of this in the service along the way. It has been like this since the beginning. From the beginning, Satan's appeal to our parents has been simply this. What you need most is the very thing that God has forbidden you. And that is sin. That, that is folly. This idea of not trusting in the word of God, not trusting that he has what's best for us in mind. And so she says, come take what is not yours. And so we see the outcome or the conclusions of the two parties. Look again at verse 6. Leave your simple ways and you will live. Walk in the way of insight. But sadly, verse 18. Little do they know that the dead are there. That her guests are deep in the realm of the dead. The difference between marrying one over the other, choosing one over the other, going to one feast over the other, the differences are grave. One is a house of life, and one is a house of death. Those who refuse wisdom's meal and invitation, the text is very clear, they get death. But to accept her invitation means that we must change our ways. It means we must repent. It means we would joyfully receive the invitation to dine with wisdom. That's what's happening here. Brothers and sisters, part of the problem, as we think about wisdom, we're not working our way through Proverbs, but part of the problem is that we might struggle with this idea of what is foolishness, right? We might even have in mind, at least if you're like me, you might even have in mind when you hear the word foolishness, you sort of think the lovable idiot that you see in shows. Like for my generation, you think Screech from Saved by the Bell. You might think from Zane's generation, Gomer Pyle from... Uh, so, sorry. But what we need to understand is that foolishness is more than that. Like the, the scriptures are teaching us foolishness is things like pride, things like laziness, like not being able to control your tongue, not being able to spend your time and your money well. We're going to see in a minute foolishness is not even being able to receive instruction, to receive correction. And the even bigger concern, at least seems to be from, from this verse, is that foolishness is seducing us with half-truths. She's not telling us the whole story. Sin does bring pleasure for a time. Foolishness can bring pleasure for a season. But what's pleasant for a time will end up being, being devastating. See, the epitome of foolishness, as it was with our parents in the garden, is simply not being able to connect our actions with the consequences that those actions will have. Sadly, we do not see that in taking Folly's invitation, we are taking an invitation to our own funeral. I think the question we need to wrestle with as we wrestle with what the book of Proverbs says 
is do we really believe discerning between wisdom and folly is a life or death concern? One commentator said it like this, many eat on earth what they will digest in hell. Again, the Proverbs are very clear. There is a way that seems right to a man that leads to destruction. Now let's turn our attention to the middle portion of the text. It's very interesting. At first glance, it may seem like, why do you have these two women vying for affection? And then you have these verses here in the middle. But we're going to see why Solomon has put these in the middle. Look at verse 7. Whoever corrects a mocker invites insults. Whoever rebukes the wicked incurs abuse. Do not rebuke mockers or they will hate you. Rebuke the wise and they will love you. Instruct the wise and they will be wiser still. Teach the righteous and they will add to their learning. Again, at first glance, this section may seem out of place, but what Solomon is doing in in sandwiching these verses in the middle of this text is giving a picture of what these women will produce in those that are in relationship with them. Because we're going to see if those who heed verses 7 through 12, just like we see in verse 6, those who heed these verses, they get life. These verses act as a test to help us understand which path we are on. They help us see, are we on the way of wisdom or the way of folly? And so she advises the son, right? If you correct a, a mocker or a fool, you will get insult, abuse, dishonor. You'll get hate. Uses the word here, mockers. Mockers are those that are, that are obnoxious. They're arrogant. They're obstinate. It's those who have no, no desire to change whatsoever. And they treat those that would correct them or help them. They treat them with, with ridicule. They te- uh, treat them with contempt. Again, they're not open to any sort of instruction or correction. On the other hand, the text Solomon is saying, correct or reprove a wise and a righteous man. He will love you. He will grow wiser. It will add to his learning, the text says. The wise love correction. They love reproof because they do not think they've yet arrived to the point where they cannot grow and become wiser. So they love instruction. They love the one who gives the instruction. Wisdom is appealing to us not to become hostile to correction, to love both the instructor and to love the instruction. And instructors and instruction come in all kinds of ways for all of us, right? For a child in the room, it comes from parents. Parents, can I get an amen? It comes from elders. It comes from teachers that we've already prayed for. It comes from bosses. It comes from family. It comes from friends. It comes from people we know. The bottom line is simply this. We are not perfect and we are not God. And so we still need correction. And yet we know this all too well, right? When we've been corrected in our life all too well, we know that our pride goes up. We know that our defenses go up when somebody corrects us. So wisdom is saying how you respond to instruction, how you respond to correction reveals which path you are on. So maybe let me just ask some really practical questions for us to consider. Like when somebody corrects you, gives you instruction, what's going on in your heart when you hear that? Like is there love in your heart towards that or is there anger? Do we listen to correction or do we immediately have a comeback or a way to justify our behavior or maybe even somebody corrects us and we immediately have five things wrong with them that we want to share with them? And maybe just get even more to the point. Like, is there anything in your life, is there anything in my life 
that is just in some sense completely off limits for somebody to touch. Like if somebody talks to me about my parenting, am I saying, don't you dare talk to me about that? Like, is there anything in my life that is completely off limits? How I spend my time, how I spend my money, how I use my tongue. Do you have a relationship with anyone that has the freedom to say tough things to you? Christians, we need to allow this in our lives. And we need to gently be this for others. Because humbly and gently giving and receiving correction will make us wise and it will make us godly. Let me just speak to, the, to those in this room, children in this room. Just two things I think this text is going to really, really help us understand. Just talk to you for just a minute. Two things you need to know. If you want to be wise, if you want to grow in understanding, grow in learning, two really important things is simply this. Listen to your parents who were a gift to you and delight in the Bible. Love the Bible because it's the best instructor that we have. You know, when I studied this text a few years ago, when I worked through it like the first time to teach it, I was devastated by these verses. Because at the time, I was having this pain and swelling in my big toe. And like, I wasn't married yet, so my mom was like, you need to go to the doctor. There's a small group leader's wife who was like, you really need to go to the doctor. And I'm like, I'm a grown man and it's a big toe. Like, just leave me alone. But yet, as I've reflected on these verses, I've recognized how foolish my heart is. Like when people are lovingly telling me something to help me out, that my response to them is to chide them, to ridicule them, to get defensive. It ended up being gout, and at one point it got so bad in my knee that I couldn't walk. Brothers and sisters, the way we respond to correction is not a personality type. In fact, it reveals whether we're on a path to wisdom or whether we are self-worshippers who would say to somebody, how dare you talk to me about that? And that's why the final verses are really, really crucial. We need to fear the Lord and we need to know God. Look at verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For through wisdom, your days will be many and years will be added to your life. The sage goes back to the very beginning of the book. He tells him what the beginning of wisdom is. It's the main way the son will know how to rule the kingdom well, and it's simply to fear the Lord. This is this idea of proper, loving reverence of God. It's, it's trusting him. It's following him. It's submitting to him. The wise acknowledge and fear God, whereas the fool in Romans 1, it says, suppresses the truths about God, worships created things rather than the creator God. And what's striking to me in the text is, to have knowledge equals knowing God. You might say it like this, everyday wisdom, this is earthly everyday wisdom has heavenly origins. The question is, do you want to be wise? If you want to be wise, then you need to know God. Knowledge of the Holy One is understanding because ultimately, if we do not know Him, we know nothing. Scientists can know the depths of a black hole and not know the one who put the, the universe in motion and ultimately they know nothing. If we're going to understand creation, how it works, then we must know the Creator. Wisdom is not knowing more facts. It's knowing how the world has been designed, how the world has been ordered, and then being able to live according to that design and order. And you only fully know that by knowing the one who is the designer. And we know that by His Word. Verse 11 then tells us the, the outcome. 
And Solomon has been, again, pushing his son to have relationship with wisdom so that he can get life. And it's very interesting. Wisdom here makes a promise that only God can provide. Through wisdom, your days will be many and years will be added to your life. The promise is simply this. If you're in relationship to God, there is better life now and there is eternal life to come. Better life now because you know how the world is designed and ordered eternal life to come. Wisdom is equating herself here with with God himself, with the promise that only God can do. And verse 12 then shows us there are eternal consequences for what we choose. If you are wise, your wisdom will reward you. If you are a mocker, you alone will suffer. The Bible is an intensely corporate book, yet this is a strong expression of individualism. Commentators say it's one of the strongest in all the Bible. We see here a, a theological concept known as soul competency, which is simply this. Upon death, whether you enter into eternal joy or eternal suffering is a decision that comes down to you and to you alone. It's not to say that the decisions in you, may, you make in this life will not have consequences for others. But like when you face the judge of all living, it's not going to matter who your parents are. It's not going to matter what church you come from. It's simply going to matter, have you dealt with God? So that's what Solomon is saying here. Again, the, the consequences from being in relationship with foolishness or wisdom are eternal consequences. So the question this morning is, who will we choose? Let's ask it like this first. Who will Solomon's son choose? We have every reason to believe that Solomon's son chose poorly. We see this in the text. We have textual warrant. Lady Folly has the last word in the text. Just one verse later, it says this, A wise son brings joy to his father, but a foolish son brings grief to his mother. Then even more than that, as you fast forward to what I read at the beginning, Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 3, at the end, you have this prince son who is saying simply this, I have not learned wisdom, nor have I attained knowledge of the Holy One. And so he concludes, I am, I'm too brutish, I'm too stupid to be a man let alone a king. He laments in Proverbs 34, there seems to be no hope because there's no one who can ascend to heaven and gain proper wisdom and then come back down. And yet the end of the book, Proverbs holds out hope that there will be this prince's son who will choose wisdom, who will rule God's people wisely, that he will rule God's people justly. We're introduced in chapter 31 to this king named Lemuel. It's very interesting. We don't, we don't hear about him in the rest of the Bible. He's nowhere else mentioned in the rest of the Bible. And yet his name means belongs to God. In Proverbs 31, 2, as his mother speaks to him, she calls him my son, but she does so in Aramaic. In the Old Testament, there's only one other place where we see the term my son used in Aramaic. It's Psalm chapter 2, where God says, you are my son, and today I have begotten you. This son will choose wisdom for his bride. In fact, he will choose the Proverbs 31 woman as his mate. Thus he will become wise himself. He will be sp spoken well of in the gate. And yet we know not only from Proverbs, we know from the rest of the scriptures, we know from history itself that Solomon's sons will choose wisdom poorly. They will follow in the footsteps of their father. They will indeed bring shame to their mothers. They will bring heartache to the nation. 
most often pictured or most often done because they will marry pagan women. They will choose women for their wives who worship false gods. And they will sin and they will fail in the hope that we would have a son who will establish an eternal kingdom, who will rule that kingdom by wisdom, will lie dead in Jerusalem tombs. Until we come to a town called Nazareth. Until we come to this son of Solomon, who has said will be growing in wisdom and favor and stature with both God and with man. The one who would, the first time he would hear the term, my son, would be from his only biological parent, his mother, who would say it in Aramaic. The one who would speak in parables, he would speak in Proverbs, he would talk in one of these about people who build their their houses either on shifting sand or on a firm foundation. Who in Luke 14 will compare the kingdom of God to a wedding feast by which the servants have been sent out to the highways and byways to invite all to this free feast, to the one who John 2 tells us will make better wine. He will call out from another high place. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that he has become the wisdom of God for us. That is, he has become for us righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Indeed, if wisdom is connected to knowledge of the Holy One, if we are going to be wise with the kind of wisdom that brings better life now and longer life to come, we must know him. We must indeed make a faith decision to be in a relationship with him. Because yes, wisdom is a path. Wisdom is a way of life. It is knowledge. It is discernment. But ultimately, wisdom is a person who you can know and love. And wisdom has a name. Jesus, who has come from Nazareth. And what does he do when he comes on the scene? It's very interesting. The very first thing he does is he invites the simple. He offers out an invitation to the simple. Simply leave your nets and follow me. And that invitation hangs out there for sinners like us. If you're here and you're not a Christian, the text is very, very clear. The penalty for the foolish, the penalty for the unwise is the realm of the dead. It is the grave. And if we're honest, even worse than that, all of us have joined Folly's party. All of us at times have been lazy, defensive, prideful, lustful, quick-tempered, quarrelsome. We've likely hated correction. We cannot walk in the way of wisdom. And so the result for all of us should be the same. The fate for all of us is the realm of the dead. It is the grave. And yet the good news this morning is that you would be surprised to know who has been there before you. Christ has been there before you. Christ has taken the place of the fool at the cross, though he never sinned. Listen to this. He never even said one idle word. And at the cross, at the high place, at Calvary's hill, he stood in the place of the fool. He stood in the place of sinners. He suffered the fate of the ungodly. He suffered the fate of the unrighteous. He took upon himself the wrath and the judgment of God to our sin and our foolishness and our wickedness and our unrighteousness. And he took the final penalty of foolishness. He took the realm of the dead. He took the grave upon himself. Yet how do we know he is who he says he is and he has done what he says he has done? 
because he has gone through the realm of the dead. He has come out on the other side as the victorious and resurrected, long-awaited for son of Solomon, who is the true king, the rightful heir to the throne of David, who establishes a rule and an everlasting kingdom, and he does so by wisdom. And he issues out a call. Will you turn from your simple ways, cling to him, and will you find life that is truly life? Indeed, if you will be in relationship with him, you will be wise because he has become to us wisdom. It even says there in 1 Corinthians 1, he has become to us righteousness in Christ. We find a righteousness that is not our own. And then let's finally remember where we are headed. It is so true who you marry changes everything about who you are as a person. Certainly has for me. I'm not quite as helpless and hopeless as I used to be. But in this life, marriage is simply a glimpse. It's just simply a taste of the greater wedding to come. Of that day in which Solomon's son will be presented his bride. Who he has made his bride at the cost of his own blood. Revelation 21 pictures it as being handed over what is called a most precious jewel. And he has made that bride a Proverbs 31 wife. And on that day, our brother John tells us, we will sit down at a wedding feast. Wisdom himself will be at the head of the table and he will serve us bread and he will serve us wine. And I'm hoping queso. And we will feast with the captain of our salvation. And so until we see him face to face, may we be enthralled with him learn about him, love him, be changed into his image, for indeed, knowledge of the Holy One is wisdom. Father, we thank you for your word. Indeed, it is able to make us wise unto salvation through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we are so thankful that one greater than Solomon has come. Father, we pray because of the fellowship of the saints, the singing of the saints, the reading and preaching of your word. Father, I pray that we would be made like him in every way. Would you certainly make us wise? Father, would you make us those as well who will go out into the highways and byways and invite people into this feast? Would you give us great favor in that? Help us now to be changed from one degree of glory to another. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.